0: Good evening to each one of you again, greet you in the name of Jesus, it's good to be here to worship again. And the message for this evening, Overcoming Idolatry, is the most exciting message. We don't have time, didn't have time to dig into all the idols or even real in-depth of many of them. But the focus of my message this evening is the fact that as a Christian, in the year 2023, you can live a successful Christian life. Do you believe that? You can be an overcomer, and you can live a victorious life. Even if the pressure is increasing from the world around us, we can be successful Christians. And so I want us, that to be our focus this evening as we move to a little more positive focus and help us to be able to overcome that and to think through how we can be an overcomer today and through every day of our Christian life. You can turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, another Old Testament passage. I'm going to use for a springboard this evening, and then we're going to move to the book of Daniel for a couple of thoughts from there along a more practical line. So overcoming idolatry. How do we do it? As you look back through the Old Testament, you look at the life of specifically the children of Israel and the ups and downs that took place throughout the Old Testament. You can see times when they were successful and when they were not successful. And a number of those opportunities they had where they were successful depended on the leadership. We saw that a little bit in our Sunday school lesson this morning. But there are other things that can help us on a practical level overcome idolatry. First Chronicles chapter 16, I'm going to jump in at verse 8. This is the account where David brought the ark of God. The account of Uzziah being struck from touching the ark is in the chapter before And the ark of God finally comes to Jerusalem. And this is David here praising God. And I want you to specifically notice the action words. As we think about if we're going to overcome idolatry, we need to put God in his rightful place. And if God is in his rightful place, then all of these things that I'm tempted with come to their rightful place as well. Like our brother mentioned, those good things, they are in their proper place if I have God in his proper place. And I want you to think about the action words here. And just breaking in, I'm going to jump a couple of verses, then jump down a little farther. But this is David. He delivered this psalm. It says in verse 7, verse 8, it says, Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. Remember his marvelous works that he had done, his marvelous wonders and judgments of his mouth. And I'll stop there. But just notice some of those action words. He says, give thanks, make known, sing, talk, give glory to his holy name. Seek the Lord with his strength, and seek the Lord and his strength. Continually seek his face. Remember his marvelous works. If I'm remembering what God has done, if I'm seeking him continually, And it says there that I'm making known his deeds among his people, among the people. So if I'm proclaiming the greatness of my God, if I'm remembering what he has done, then it's going to help me to put God in his proper place. And when he is there, then I can be successful in remembering the value of all the other things that are surrounding me. Jump down now to verse 23, the same chapter there, 1 Chronicles 16. He goes on in between there to give some other things. And again, notice some of the words. Verse 23 says, Sing unto the Lord all the earth. shew forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among the nation. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give unto the Lord Ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And again, some more action words. We see that great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is the God that made all of the things that we see. And it says again, declare his name among the heathen. Then verse 29, we are to give God, the glory that is due unto his name. And if we recognize him as the creator, the sovereign God, then it is easier for us to give that glory and we are then to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We're not going to talk a lot this evening about worship, but if I put God in his proper place, then I can worship in the beauty of holiness and my life can be a blessing to God and to everyone around us because those earthly things are in their proper place as well. So if we're going to be overcomers of idolatry, we need to, first of all, put God in his proper place and recognize him as the Lord of, first of all, my life of creation of everything around us. One quote before we get into the outline, Cyprian, he was an early church bishop in Carthage, and this may be a little lengthy, but he sums it up well. And I think he makes a couple of good points. He said, The one peaceful and trustworthy tranquility, the one solid and firm, constant security is this, for a man to withdraw from this whirlpool of a distracting world and to lift his eyes from earth to heaven. Anchored on the ground of the harbor of salvation, he who is actually greater than the world can crave nothing or desire nothing from the world. How stable, how free from all shocks is that safeguard. How heavenly to be loose from the snares of this entangling world and to be purged from earthly dregs and to be fitted for the light of eternal immortality. It's a little bit of old English there that may not make as much sense to us. But I like that phrase, to lift our eyes from earth to heaven and to be anchored in that salvation that we have. If our eyes are lifted from those things of earth to heaven, we're anchored in the salvation that we've received, applying that In the New Testament context, through Jesus Christ, we've received that salvation. We can shift our focus from earth to heaven. And then he says how free this makes us. How free from all those entangling things. This is almost 2,000 years ago. He wrote this in the 200s. And that message is still the same today. If I can free myself from all of these entangling things and lift my eyes to heaven, I can then be successful in overcoming idolatry you can live a victorious Christian life. I want you to turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, a familiar account here. We know the story, and I want to pull out some practical applications as we think about how I, today, in this time, can successfully overcome those things in my life. And I love the book of Daniel. It is one of those books in the Old Testament that maybe is encouraging, the stories in it are familiar, children can be excited about them. And as we look at the success of specifically Daniel, and in this count, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four individuals, and the difference that they made. This is just four individuals in a foreign land, in captivity, as virtually as slaves, and the difference the impact that they had in the world. And so this evening if you think that you're a nobody, you don't have a lot of effect on the world around you, when you read the book of Daniel, a couple of people can make a difference. People who are faithfully serving the God no matter serving God no matter where they are can impact the world around them. And that's true for all of us. So the book of Daniel is a real encouragement to me. I'm going to jump into Daniel chapter 3 of verse 8. We know the account here. The king set up this image. He called them to bow down to this image. And when they heard this sound of music, and verse 8, it says, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree, and every man shall that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the whole salt. Tree and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews among of whom thou hast set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast that same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is this God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy god, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and in the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace 1, 7 times more than it was wont to be heated, And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire slew those men and took that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And I'll stop there for now. We'll look at the last couple verses later. But this is an account that can inspire us to be successful in overcoming idolatry. So, number one, we need to be confidently convinced of the truth. These men, they were convinced and they knew what was true. And I love the picture you get there of these men. It doesn't show them as coming up to the king and mumbling their answers. I get the picture of them coming up. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king, the most powerful man on the earth at that time. He is the king. He is the man. And these men who were captives, they come up to him and I picture them looking him in the eye and telling him that we are not going to serve your God. It doesn't matter what you do to us, we will not bow down. They knew what was true, they knew it was right, and they were willing to do that no matter the cost. And so if we're going to be victorious in overcoming idolatry, we need to be convinced of the truth. We need to know what the truth is, and we need to know how God views idolatry, and that will help us to have this conviction that they had. And we need men and women today that have that boldness. That are able to say, you know what, no matter the pressure, no matter the object, no matter what changes in the culture around me, and no matter how powerful the person is that's calling me or trying to draw my attention away from the true God, I'm not going to bow down. Just the same answer that these men gave. And too often, at least for me, when the pressure is most, that's when we kind of wilt in shame and we don't have that boldness. We need to be men and women of integrity who know the truth and are convinced and able to confront idolatry head on. And the same bold answer that these men had, that it doesn't matter what you do to us, it doesn't even matter if God doesn't deliver us, we are not going to bow down to this idol at any cost. Number two, we need to clearly identify what is or what may become an idol for me. And I kind of mentioned this throughout the messages But if we are going to identify and overcome idolatry, I need to be able to examine my life honestly. Wouldn't it be nice, this image was probably 90 feet high, somewhere around there, 9 feet across. So it was a big image. This was an idol that you could easily see. These men could see this idol and they could say, that is the idol, we are not going to bow down to it. And if I'm going to have that same conviction... I need to identify clearly what is an idol in my life. And I mentioned a number of those, but we need to honestly examine our life and what may or may become an idol. A couple of years ago, I got a notice in the mail that I'm getting audited by the IRS, which is not a great thing to get. And so as I went through this process, talked to the accountant, began to get these things together for the IRS guy, and he actually came out to my place and sat down in my office and went over a whole bunch of stuff. But if you want to a thorough examination of your books and your record-keeping, the IRS is actually pretty good at it. And I'm not very good at record-keeping, so there was a few missing things that I had to chase after and find and receipts and things. And it cost me quite a bit for the accountant to take care of it, and in the end it was fairly close. But that kind of examination of your financial records reveals any inconsistencies. It reveals, you know, where you're missing a receipt here. You took this as a deduction. It reveals those inconsistencies. And as I think about evaluating my life from a spiritual standpoint, am I willing to give myself that kind of examination, an honest examination. You know, I could argue with that IRS man, and I would have, there was a couple things I would have liked to argue about. Overall, he was fairly reasonable. There was a few things I would have liked to contest a little bit, but it, he was the one in charge. Whatever he said went at the end of the day. And so if I'm going to be able to be an overcomer, I need to evaluate my life honestly. And I can try to hide those things. I can try to sweep them under, and eventually they're going to come to light. And so if we're going to be overcomers, we need to clearly identify what an idol or what may become an idol in my life. Number three, we need to be convinced that compromise is not an option. As I look at these men, too many times in my life, and I think most of us can attest to this, that when it comes to our spiritual life, we like to kind of try to find somewhere in the middle. We we put God in his place. And we, we don't deny him, but we want to hold on to some of the other things as well. So we try to find some middle road in between. And if I'm going to be successful, I need to recognize, like these men, that I'm not going to compromise. No matter what happens, compromise is not an option. And that idea of the middle ground or being able to hold on to both heavenly and temporal, it's not going to work. And I mentioned that this morning in that Jesus said there about money. You cannot serve both. It's impossible to do that. Isaiah 45, verse 21 and 22 says, There is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. So I am God and there is none else. Very simple, Isaiah is saying that I am the God. I brought salvation. And if we move that forward to the New Testament... We have many blessings that these Old Testament saints here didn't recognize or didn't fully understand. And yet, we can put God in his proper place. And if I'm willing to compromise, I begin to pull him down and I begin to elevate things beside him. You also notice, according to Exodus, I mentioned the Ten Commandments last night. It says God is a jealous God. God doesn't want any form of compromise. And as these men here stood before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, they probably were tempted to compromise at least a little bit. I'm sure it was a temptation. And yet they didn't. Not even in a little way. In fact, they went to maybe almost the other extreme. They seemed bold to almost a point of disrespect to this king. And they were convinced what the truth was, and they were not going to compromise. God will not settle for less than complete devotion. If I asked you if you ever heard of the name Quintus, anybody ever heard of the name Quintus? You'd have to be a real historian, a couple people. Quintus was a man, about the time of Polycarp. Most people of church history have heard of Polycarp. And it's fascinating, as you look at the life of people that faced this opposition, Polycarp there, as he was the Bishop of Smyrna, and he would have probably known or been associated with the Apostle John, he was taken there to Rome and they were, he was called upon to deny Christ and he made that famous statement that 86 years have I served him. He did me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king that saved me? And he actually pointed to the crowd around him and accused them of being atheists or away with the atheists is what he wanted the king, they wanted him to say. And he actually said that to the crowd. And the crowd became so enraged that they ran out in the streets and they helped to get the wood to put Polycarp to death. And he was a man that was faithful. He was not going to compromise. Quintus, on the other hand, was around that same time. And the pressure got to him, and he compromised. And I don't know, I didn't look recently, where if there was any historical record of what happened to him afterwards. But as these people were brought to this point where they had to make a choice, it was life or death, you are either going to hold to God, you're either going to put him in his rightful place, or you're going to deny him, you must make a choice, some of them failed, but many of them were faithful. And they recognized that no matter the cost, I'm not going to compromise. And if we're going to face that opposition, which I believe as you look at the events unfolding in the world, we may face some of that persecution. I need to decide right now that I'm not going to compromise. Not in that moment. I need to have a Conviction right now that I will not compromise no matter what and then when I'm put in that situation I can faithfully serve God number four if we're going to overcome idolatry we cannot make excuses and this is maybe overlapping a little bit with the point before but if you think about these men standing before the king there are a number of excuses they could have made and here maybe are just a few we will bow down but actually not worship so we're going to bow down to this, king, this idol, but we're not going to worship. The king wanted them to worship, but they could have probably faked it. All they had to do was lay down on the ground or fall down on the ground, and they might have been able to get away with it. Um, we will do it just this one time. We must obey the king's command. So this is the king. We're, we're supposed to obey him. We're slaves. We're called to obey him. And this one time, we're just going to go through the motions Or maybe they could have said, this is a foreign land, and we're just doing what's the custom of the land. They're in a foreign land. Maybe they could have said, well, these are the customs. This is what the people around us are doing, so we're going to do it as well. Even though that's not really what we believe. They could have said, it's not hurting anybody. It's not going to hurt anybody else if I compromise this time a little bit. Or they could have said, if we get killed, we can't do any more good in this land. So if we actually get thrown into this fiery furnace... Well, that that ends our opportunity to show God to these people. They could have came up with many excuses. We're very good at doing that. Most of us can identify with making excuses and justifying our actions. And if you find yourself justifying something that you know is maybe not quite right or not quite in its proper place, then you need to look diligently for idols in your life. You need to be able to recognize That And to look at those excuses for what they are. And God sees right through those excuses. A few years ago, I think this is, I don't have the year down, but CareerBuilder did an annual survey of people that were skipping work. And it said that 29% of people, they admitted playing hooky, or they called in sick, or they took a day off when they really weren't sick. And they come up with all kinds of excuses. Many of them, you know, talk about, being sick or running errands or they have family emergencies but as they put this compilation together from career builders they put down ten of the excuses that are on the odd side and I found it interesting so we can justify what we want to do we want to take a day off work we can come up with an excuse Uh, pretty good at doing that this is ten of the odd excuses or the weirdest excuses they got as they did this survey Number one, bats got in my hair. Uh, How? Number two, got a cold from my puppy. Number three, I hurt my back chasing a beaver. No idea why. Number four, had a headache after going to too many garage sales. I don't know about that either. Number five, my brother-in-law was kidnapped by a drug cartel while in Mexico. Number six, I ate too much at a party. Number seven, a refrigerator fell on me. Number eight... I fell out of bed and broke my nose. Number nine, I drank antifreeze by mistake and had to go to the hospital. And then my favorite, number ten, a deer bit me during hunting season. (laughs) I don't know how you call into your boss with a straight face and say any of those excuses. i am maybe stretched a little bit. But we look at that on a human level. If you were the boss and somebody called in with one of those excuses, you would probably have some discussion with that employee the next day, or whenever they came back again, or if they maybe never came back. But I wonder sometimes, as we look at the excuses that I give in my life, does God look at it kind of in that same way? That that excuse is ridiculous. You know, I see right through what you're trying to do. You're trying to justify your behavior, what you want to do. So we cannot be a people who are making excuses. We must be men and women of integrity that are willing to face the truth. Benjamin Franklin put it very succinctly. He said, he that is good at making excuses is seldom good for anything else. And I wonder in our Christian life, if we're good at making excuses, we're not going to be very successful in our Christian life. Number five, there will be a cost. As I think about overcoming idolatry, I need to recognize that there's going to be a cost. I'm going to have to deny myself. I'm going to have to give up some things. I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm going to have to do some things and to refrain from doing some things that I really want to do. And if I'm not willing to face that or to understand that cost, then those idols are going to continue to be a temptation to me. But if I recognize that there's going to be a cost and I decide right now that I'm going to pay that, I'm willing to do that no matter the cost. And we get those, that picture of these men doing that in this account here in Daniel. And in our brother's devotions as well. That if you are going to deny these things, hate there is a strong word. And we don't really like that idea. But I must recognize that there's going to be a cost. And too many times in our ease and luxury that they have, that we have we underestimate what that cost might be. I want to do both. I want to have a little bit of this idol. I want to have a little bit of this connection and still have God as part of the equation in my life. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's a tough statement. If you don't forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. How many of us are trying to be a disciple and still trying not to forsake all of those things that are a temptation to us? Number six: If we're going to overcome idolatry, we need to be prepared to deal with the conflict. There are two opposing sides in this world that are vying for our allegiance, and we we recognize that, we understand that. There are two kingdoms. There are there's this constant opposition. And these men, if you go back to Daniel 1 and 2, they were successful in overcoming some temptations prior to this. And yet here, once again, they're called to stand for their faith. And we need to recognize that we are in a battle. And just because you're victorious in chapter 1 and 2 doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be victorious in the next opposition that you face. And if we as people this evening commit to serving God no matter what, that pressure, I believe, Satan is going to maybe even make it more difficult because he wants to get us to stumble. He wants to get us to fall. And we need to recognize that there is going to be a conflict. As long as we live on this earth, one of Satan's main goals will be to remove or to replace God as a supreme ruler in our life. And I mentioned this before, but he doesn't care how he does that. If he can get us to... Move away from God being that supreme ruler, that is Satan's desire. John 15, verse 18 and 19 says, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That conflict is going to rage. As long as we are here, we are going to be in that battle. And we need to be prepared to face that. As I study history, I've wondered many times, Looking at these battles, especially as you look at older historical battles, what would make someone want to go in the line of, say, cannon fire or rifle fire or bayonet fighting? Why would you do that? How dedicated to your cause would you have to be to go when you're in the face of almost certain death? And I'm not sure I have the answer. As I look at different battles and the allegiance people have to the cause that they're fighting for, some of it may be adrenaline, some of it may be forced. But if we look at it in the context of our spiritual lives, are we that committed for the cause of Jesus Christ? That no matter what it costs me, I'm going to continue to fight, and I'm going to fight to the end. We need to recognize that there will be conflict and then we can prepare to be successful in that. Number seven, we need to limit our exposure. If we're going to saturate our lives all week with the culture around us and with the things that are constantly trying to pull us away, the two hours we show up to church on Sunday morning are not going to counteract that. If we are overly exposed to the things around us, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to overcome those idols. And that exposure, that constant pressure, is going to draw our hearts away. And so we need to be people that set boundaries in our life. This morning I talked a little bit about social media. If you are using social media, and you're using it as a tool, you need to set certain boundaries. Or it's going to draw your heart away. And whatever other idol that you're wrestling with right now, you need to set some boundaries. I will only go here. I will not follow this. I will not make this purchase because I know that it's going to draw my heart away. So I'm going to set some boundaries in my life. And that overexposure from the culture around us causes many people to continually wrestle with these idols. If we're overexposed, we are going to continue to wrestle with idolatry. Andre Peterson, writing for World Magazine, says there was a time when the plot would have seemed to produce a shudder. This is why dystopian forewarnings by George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and H.G. Wells must have been deemed flops in the end, having failed to foresee that the future, once here, will have been arrived at with such gradual and gentle acclamation as to be embraced and not recoiled at. And she's writing about the change and shift in culture. And as these people that wrote these ideas of what was going to happen in the future, and some of them are odd, but some are fairly close to correct. And she comes to the conclusion that they got it wrong because people didn't recognize them as as absurd. Because we got there so gradually that we just swallowed it. And if we're overly exposed to the culture around us and that influence... It's going to acclimate us gradually to the world around us. And those idols are going to then be something that's very difficult for us to recognize. Another quote from John Piper, who I disagree with on a few things, but has a lot of good thoughts. He says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. The greatest adversary to the love of God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the deadliest appetites are not for the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. For when those replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. And I thought that was well put. We are not many times, it is the constant nibbling at the world that fills us with those things, and we lose our hunger for God, and then he is no longer Lord of our life. And as I am constantly nibbling at those things of the world, I'm filled up with them. He says there at the end of that quote that this idol in my life becomes almost unrecognizable and almost incurable because I can't identify it anymore. I've become so acculturated to the world around me that it no longer stands out as a gross sin or as an idol that needs to be thrown out of my life. Number eight, we need to build good relationships. If we're going to overcome idolatry, we need to be people that cultivate good relationships. We see this in this account here. These three men standing together. Daniel is called later on to stand alone. And I believe, looking at these men of integrity, they probably could have stood alone. We need to be prepared to stand alone. But how much better if we have brothers and sisters around us that we can stand together? And we need, in a time when so many relationships are surface just not deep relationships. We need to build good relationships because we need each other. If we are going to stand against the pressure of idolatry, we need good relationships. We need to develop them. We need to be people that are humble enough to accept correction from others, that build each other up, encourage each other because we need it. All of us need that. All of us need those to walk alongside of us. On Thursday... I had the class, two of the classes from school, went to Refreshing Mountain, and there's a number of activities they can do there, and a lot of it centers around team building. And they have a camp there, and they do all kinds of things. And it's interesting, so they were split into groups of, there was about 19 in the group I had, and I didn't really have to do anything, it was just there watching. But it was fascinating to watch. So they took them out, and they made them do... A number of different activities, whether it was walking across the thing where they had to use e- help each other to get across, and they had cable courses where they had to get the whole team from one side to the other. And a lot of the point of that was that you need each other, and you need to get the whole team from one side to the other. You can't let anybody behind. And if I make that application in the church today, we need a team where we are committed to helping each other, you can lean on the other person. One of the activities, they had to cross over um, two planks, and they had to walk, they had to put their hands against each other and lean against each other so that they could get across there without touching the ground. They had to lean on the other person, and the first time or two, they had difficulty doing that, because you had to trust the person on the other side, that that person wasn't going to let you fall on your face. And we need that in our churches. We need people that can lean on each other, that care about each other, and that are concerned that nobody gets left behind. That nobody here in this brotherhood, in the circles that we're in, gets left behind. We need people to lean on and to find the strength to stand together. Godly friends can point out the idols we miss. We need people in our lives to point them out. Sometimes it's difficult for me to evaluate my life but it doesn't take somebody else long to kind of catch on to what my passions are and what excites me and what I'm talking about and what I'm focusing and spending my time on. And we need people that are willing to speak into our lives. And then we need to be able to take that input in humility. And if we do that, we can be successful in overcoming the idols in our lives. We must be committed to stand alone, but praise God when we have others to stand with us. What a blessing that we can stand with brothers and sisters together. Number nine, going right along with that, if we're going to be successful in overcoming idolatry, we need to be part of a local church. And I firmly believe this. I look at people that are starting their small groups and stepping outside of church because of a number of different reasons. And I'm not saying that 100% of the time you won't be successful, but it's going to be much easier to stand against idolatry in our world today if you are part of a brotherhood. And we need that. We need the support of each other. William MacDonald said, "Surrendered Christians, anchor their work in the local church. And in that comes accountability. And all of us need that accountability. It may not be easy at times. It may be difficult. It may be difficult to submit. Things may not always be like I would prefer. But I need to submit to the brotherhood. And in that, We can find strength, and we need a church that is united. Divided churches drive away our youth, and that's a subject in itself. But we need churches that are united so that we can take a stand against these changing things in our world. And we can't stay on top of all of them individually, I don't believe. But if we work together as a brotherhood, there's safety there. There's a blessing in that. Another concept to think about with the church, being conservative is not good enough. You may argue with that. What is conservative today was possibly liberal only a few years ago. And as culture changes, just being different from culture is not good enough. We need to be people who know the truth, who are completely sold out for Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter how far culture goes off course, I'm still going to stand for what's right. I'm not just going to be a little bit more conservative from where they're going. And that is a danger as I look at our churches today, David Bersow says, we're only fooling ourselves when we equate conservative attitudes with godly attitudes. And I see our churches as I see culture changing and I see the pressure from the culture around us. Just because we're better than the people around us doesn't mean we're good enough. Doesn't mean there's no idols there. That doesn't mean there's not something I should improve. And as we think about a brotherhood, that's the blessing. We can be part of that brotherhood and we can overcome That pressure that's around us. Another one with the church for you to consider we need to eliminate the generation gap in our churches. This is something else that I see in our churches, and maybe a slight improvement, not sure. But we need the wisdom of the old people and we need the energy of the youth. And we need that to work together. You cannot split them, we need both to balance each other out. And when I get set in my ways, when I am completely closed to new ideas, or I'm completely squashing that energy, that's going to be a problem. We need both. We need that generation gap to go away. We need the input between each other. We need to be open for correction. We need older people who care about the youth, who are willing to speak into their lives. We need youth who are willing to ask for advice. And when we do that, it's going to help us to overcome so many of these things. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ if we can work together. And if we don't do that, there's going to be a lot of casualties along the way. We need to be part of a local church. Number 10, we need to completely surrender ourselves. I mentioned this a little bit this morning. But Jesus, there, Matthew 16 says, If any man come after me and deny him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Christian life is a life of denial. And you can put the cost in there and all these other equations. But these men, as they stood here in Daniel, they were willing to completely surrender themselves. They said, It doesn't matter if you throw us into this fiery furnace. We don't care. We're not going to bow. Myself, they were completely surrendered. And if I come to that point where I can completely surrender my life and my will to what God has for me, then I'm going to be able to be successful in overcoming. I'm going to be able to overcome. But as long as even a little bit of self is on the throne of my life, there are going to be those things that are going to constantly draw me away. Those idols are going to have lots of pull and lots of inroads into my life if I do not completely surrender self. Number 11, I'll just mention this quickly. Children must be taught to continue in the faith. And as we look at these men, we don't know a lot about their parents. We don't know a lot about their background. But somewhere, these men were taught what was right. And when they were put in a a position to compromise in a foreign land, they said, we're not going to do it because we learned what is right years ago. Somewhere, someone had spoken to their lives and taught and trained them. If you want a fascinating study, if you look at communist regimes, when they take over, one of the things that they do very well is they begin to indoctrinate the children at a very young age. And as they indoctrinate them with this communist ideology, they train them, and as they grow till they become adults, they are so brainwashed and so bought into this that they become part of this machine. They don't even think for themselves anymore. And we need... To train young people not to be indoctrinated to that level, but we need to train them what is true. And so that when they face this pressure, which they will in increasing amount, I believe, we need to have them trained and taught so that they can stand no matter what that pressure is. Back to Daniel chapter 3, look at verse 23 through 28. This is some of the exciting verses verses here as we think about encouraging passages in the Bible. And this is a beautiful picture here. Verse 24. Actually, I'll start at verse 24. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astoned, and rose up in haste, and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loosed, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth, and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men, upon whom whose bodies the fire had no power, Nor was the hair of their head singed, neither was their coats changed, nor the smell of fire passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and blessed the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and had delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. What a picture! These men took this bold stand and they were successful. They said, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're still going to stand. And yet, as Nebuchadnezzar, this king of kings, he comes down, he looks into this furnace, and what he sees is shocking to him. These men that he cast in, not only there's three, now there's four. And they're walking around in this fiery furnace that had killed the men that threw them in there. This is the God we serve. The God that is able to deliver from any form of idolatry. And he is going to Give you the power to overcome. I believe that. If you do your part, God will give you the power to overcome. It may cost you your life. It may cost you greatly. These men in this account, we love this account because they were delivered. Not only were they miraculously delivered, they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out of the fiery furnace. What a miracle. And all the kings, they saw this. These people were all there. The impact of the God of these men had on the lives of these heathen people was tremendous because of this one instance where they stood. We can conquer every idol. We can overcome. God will give us the power to do that. I believe just like he gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the power to overcome, he will give you that power as well. A couple of verses to consider. You don't have to turn there. Just think about this. 1 John 4, 4-6. to You can study them on your own. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. We can overcome, because we are of God. We have that power. He says, I have overcome them, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. As we have the power of God in our lives, we can overcome. We can be successful. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. They that overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they loved not their lives even until death. Another beautiful picture as we look in to the revelation that says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We can overcome today. That is the message that we have for ourselves and for the world around us. We can be overcomers. We can be successful in overcoming idolatry. And as you think about overcoming, there are two choices. Last verses. I want you to turn to revelation chapter 21. Think about this in closing. There are two destinies. As we look at the subject of idolatry, we must be overcomers. And these two sets of verses here point that out. Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8, and then we'll jump to Revelation 22. So Revelation 21, verse 6, And he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I'll just stop there. I don't know that in my small mind I can comprehend that phrase. He shall inherit all things. I don't know what all that is. I believe it's beyond our imagination. But he shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But notice verse 8. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, and... Idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. So we see the contrast. There are two destinies for every person and you have a choice. You can accept that beautiful promise that you're going to inherit all things or you can be part of those that are cast into the lake of fire. And that is a choice that you're going to make and each person is going to make in their life. Now jump to Revelation 22 verse 12. Kind of the similar thought here. Verse 12 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into that city. What a picture of the ones that are going to overcome. That reward is with them. We're going to enter into the gates of the city. But then notice verse 15, For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers, murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh alive. So we again have the contrast, these two destinies. We have those that are going to inherit the reward, those that are going to enter into that city, and those that are going to be cast out. And that's the choice you're going to have to make. So when I view idolatry as just a little thing in my life, there are only two choices. And you're either going to get rid of those, or you're going to be cast out with the idolaters. So when we begin to justify ourselves, we need to remember these passages. It's a sober warning, thinking about how important it is to overcome idolatry. So I must take decisive action today. Another fascinating study, and I'll just mention this. Looking in the Old Testament, when they were to get rid of idols, it was to be very, very decisive. And Deuteronomy 12 is one of them. It says they're to utterly destroy these places. They're to burn them. They're to break them down, to completely destroy them. In Deuteronomy 13, um, the children of Belial there, it says that they're to go search for those that are setting up idols. And it says they're to break down the cities and completely destroy them so they're uninhabitable. That was the extent they were to go to to wipe out idolatry. They were to completely annihilate any chance of that idol being rebuilt. Or resurrected again. It was extreme action. Exodus 23 verse 13 says, "In all those things I have said unto you, be circum—sorry, unto you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods. Neither let it be heard in thy mouth." They weren't even supposed to mention that name anymore. They were supposed to completely squash them, completely get rid of them. First Corinthians 10:14 says, "Wherefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We're to run away from it." So you have that choice tonight as you evaluate your life. Think about those things that may be drawing your affection away or may be taking your time and energy from what God really, the purpose God has for your life. And we need to be decisive. We need to tear that down. Go to extreme measures to get rid of it. And I encourage you to do that. You'll find a blessing in it if you are willing to completely annihilate those idols. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your support for the opportunity to come and serve and to be here this weekend. I'll close with the words of this song, and I don't think it's in any of your books. But as I look at overcoming idolatry, this is my prayer. And the song's titled, This World Is Not My Home, and most of you probably know it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord what will I do? Angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. They're all expecting me that's one thing I know. I fixed it up with Jesus a long time ago. He will take me through though I am weak and poor and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just up in glory land we will live eternally the saints on every hand are shouting victory their song of sweetest praise drifts back through from heaven's shore. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. God bless you as you continue to serve him and continue to be faithful till we meet in that home someday in the future for those who are faithfully overcoming in in our lives we're living today. God bless you as you continue to serve him in your everyday life. Thank you.